Well, let's turn to the book, the letter of 2 Timothy. Around A.D. 65, the Apostle Paul lay in a Roman prison knowing that he was about to be martyred. And as he was in that prison, he wrote a letter, a final letter to his young co-worker named Timothy. Much of the weight and work, the responsibility for the New Testament church was going to fall on the shoulders of this young man, Timothy, and Paul was seeking to prepare him for this. Now, in one way, it would have been easy for both Paul and Timothy to be somewhat discouraged. Here, Paul was in prison. Persecution of the young church was increasing. Heresy was creeping in. And some were falling away from the faith. Many had deserted Paul. Yet Paul writes a very positive letter to his beloved son in the faith, encouraging him to continue to proclaim and pass on to faithful men the word of truth. Proclaim it to everybody and make sure you pass it on to faithful men who can tell it and proclaim it themselves. So I want to just start reading here in chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, Remind them. Now the them, I believe, was these faithful men spoken of up in verse 2 of chapter 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So remind them of these things, things that he's written uh, previous to this verse. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. That's pretty uh, strong words there. Wrangling about words can lead to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. So here, worldly and empty chatter leads to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those that are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. So, really, this message, what I want to share here today, has two major parts. One, dealing with these worldly and empty words, chatter, wrangling about words, and the other has to do much more positive. The firm foundation of God stands. So, <clears throat> Paul is telling Timothy here 
not to get sidetracked on things like worldly and empty chatter. Notice the last thing that he tells Timothy in the previous letter, 1 Timothy, back in chapter 6, verse 20 of 1 Timothy. He says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter. So this was something Paul was really concerned about, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. This thing of worldly and empty chatter is a bad thing. It takes people away from the faith. They've gone astray from the faith. Another way that he says this, this worldly and empty chatter, is what we read in verse 14, wrangling about words. And then if we didn't read it, but in verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And in a different context, in when he's writing to Titus, Paul says, shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So he's warning about getting sidetracked. Spurgeon says this about this type of conversation that he's that Paul's warning about. He said, Our days are few and are far better spent in doing good than in disputing over matters which are at best of minor importance. Our churches suffer much from petty wars over confusing and unimportant questions, questions upon points where the scripture is silent, upon mysteries which belong to God alone, upon prophecies, doubtful interpretations, and upon mere modes of observing human ceremonies, these things are foolish, and wise men avoid them. Our business is neither to ask nor answer foolish questions, but to avoid them altogether. And if instead we observe the apostles' precepts to be careful to maintain good works, we shall find ourselves far too much occupied with with profitable business to be much taken to take much interest in unworthy contentious and needless strivings in other words be about the work of doing good caring for others you won't get off into all this what he calls worldly and empty chatter so i do want to make a few comments on this subject of worldly and empty chatter. First of all, I'd like to say what it's not referring to. It's not referring to friendly conversations, everyday interactions with people. How's work going? How you doing? What's new? This is not what he's talking about here. Common courtesies and talks about what's going on in people's lives. That's not worldly and empty chatter. Now, if that's all you ever talk about, you might be getting into that category, but that's not what Paul's really referring to here. It's referring to conversations that are opposed to the word of truth or distorted. You get that somewhat uh, brought forth in this verse that we referred to 
in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments. You see, that's what he's talking about, opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Uh, things that tend to bring about ungodliness. Conversations that tend toward that are what we're supposed to avoid. Uh, and just, you know, just polite, kind, thoughtful conversations are not what he's talking about here. So I want to make that clear before we go on. It's possible to use the Bible, to actually use even the Bible in the way that Paul's talking about here, worldly and empty chatter. It's possible to use the Bible to make progress, well, it's actually regress, but it's moving towards ungodliness, to use the Bible that way. As Paul says, some religious discourse is useless, will ruin the hearers, will lead to further ungodliness, will spread like gangrene, will cause people to go astray from the truth and upset the faith of some. So this is no small thing, this worldly and empty chatter, using the Bible in an improper way. Here are some of the marks of people who use the Bible in an unbiblical way, using the Bible in an unbiblical way. They try to dis display their supposed great biblical knowledge on matters that are non-essential in order to show people how much biblical insight they have. See, here's this vague area. Well, I can tell you about that. Let me explain that to you in detail. This type of Bible knowledge does not produce, produce love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, but rather pride in being right about things that others don't understand. Some, uh, just example of what we're talking about, some of the prophecy pundits that you'll read that uh, have all these popular books I, I might be stepping on some toes, but I'm just telling you, I think that fits into this category. They make a name for themselves by majoring on minors and uncertainties in the Bible. That's, that's I think, some of what Paul's talking about here. It bolsters the book sales and it fosters pride, but it's not. type of thing that fosters godliness. True knowledge of God and his word brings humility, not pride. Certainly not pride in knowledge. When Paul speaks about wrangling about words, he's not downplaying the importance of understanding the scriptures and really digging in to the word of God. That's not what he's talking about here when he's talking about wrangling about words. Um, in fact, we see that in verse 15. 
Be diligent to present yourself to approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. You have to be diligent in digging into the scriptures. Uh, Richard Baxter said that the, uh, the scriptures are a deep well, and we need to study them hard because we have shallow minds. <laughs> So the idea that Paul, uh, Paul presents here to Timothy is the idea of a workman handling accurately the word of truth. That, that accurately, handling accurately, means to cut straight, is the actual literal there, to cut straight, to be very accurate in what you're doing as you dig into the word of God. The word was used in Paul's days for constructing a good straight road or plowing a good straight furrow, or uh, the stonemason making a straight building, cutting straight, you see. Uh, Apostolic teaching presented the straight path to God in Christ and accurately presented the righteous character of God. To deviate from that teaching, you see, that standard was to miss God's way. Don't get off into this wrangling about words. Stick to the clear presentation of what the apostles and prophets had had presented. Truth matters. Error is harmful. And what Paul was emphasizing here to Timothy is that to get into intellectual arguments on peripheral and vague vague and obscure points of doctrine will not help us grow in obedience to Christ and it will actually lead the other direction into ungodliness. So to use the Bible to fill our heads with knowledge without application, application to a holy Christ-like life is to misuse the Bible. And a lot of this stuff that goes under the heading of religious literature and religious conversations is just that. It, it, it does not foster godly living. Another misuse of the Bible is to use it as a means of worldly success or worldly gain. Some, again, some of the books that have become bestsellers among professing Christians are simply books that tell you how to gain what you want in life by being a Christian. And in that category comes all this stuff under what's called the health and wealth teaching. What is it? It's empty. It's worldly and empty, selfish chatter with a veneer of religious words. But the, but the teachings in that, in that category that we're talking about here, this health and wealth stuff, actually leads people to further ungodliness. It doesn't lead them to God. It doesn't lead them to more Christ-like living. It leads them to more selfishness. And Paul says this kind of talk spreads like gangrene. Why does it spread that way? Because worldly and empty chatter feeds on the flesh. 
false teachers are very popular. They spread like gangrene. They can gather huge followings because they make people think they can achieve their selfish goals through religion. It's just exactly what the flesh wants to hear. So, I would say this as just a little aside here, this idea of spreading like gangrene. Don't judge a teacher by the size of his following. False teaching spreads like gangrene. Don't judge a teacher by the size of his following. Judge them by their conformity to essential doctrine and their conformity to Christ and the Christ-likeness of their followers. What's their life producing? And what are the people that follow them like? Often this kind of teaching that we're talking about, this empty chatter, is not totally wrong because it depends on half-truths. But to teach a half-truth as a whole truth is to misuse the Word of God. It's really Satan's method of presenting the Bible. That's what he did there with Christ. He quoted the Bible to him, but it was a half-truth. It wasn't the whole truth. Apparently, this is one of the things that these teachers were doing uh, that Paul mentions here. He talks about uh, these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of many. That was a half-truth. There's a way of presenting that from the Bible, that the resurrection had already taken place, that got people off track. Now, what they were doing probably was incorporating into the Bible some form of what later became known as Gnosticism, which viewed the body and material things as evil. So they spoke only of a spiritual resurrection. See, the the physical body couldn't possibly be resurrected because it's evil. So Paul, so they, these teachers who were spreading like gangrene, their false teaching, this worldly and empty chatter, what were they doing? Well, they were presenting a half-truth related to the resurrection. They would say that the resurrection was spiritual, but they would deny the future physical resurrection. They could even point to some of Paul's teachings. For instance, let me just tell you how you could do this. You could say, well, Paul said this, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. You've been raised up, you see, with Christ. Paul said so. And in Colossians, he said, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So they would say, See, Paul taught this spiritual resurrection. That's what we believe in. But that's a half-truth. That's just part of what the Bible teaches. Paul clearly teaches a future, and so did Christ, so did the other apostles, clearly teaches a future resurrection of the body. So these false teachers were only presenting part of what the Bible says 
the part that fit their own false teaching. This is what the cults often do. That's why you, re- you need to know the Bible when you deal with somebody that's in the cults because they'll quote the Bible to you. Part of it, the part that fits their false teaching. People who don't know the Bible get swayed by these people who are in cults because these people have studied those certain portions and they know how to quote them to you. But you need to know the whole Bible. You need to understand the totality of what the Bible teaches on subjects. Using selected verses from the Bible is not enough. As one man said, he said, heresy always begins with truth out of balance. It's a good thing to remember. Heresy always begins with truth out of balance. Often false teachers use half-truths presented as the full truth. And that's why, you know, that's why a counterfeit, a good counterfeit, will look genuine at first glance. That's why we must examine popular teachings carefully. We must be diligent to accurately handle the word of truth, the whole word of truth. So, kind of to sum up here what I've said, people who use the Bible in ways that do not produce godly obedience or which promote worldly goals or which teach half-truths are headed for spiritual ruin. So, again, I'm just trying to emphasize here, people can actually promote the Bible in ways that bring their own destruction because they're only promoting half-truths and distortions of the word. Just a quick test to apply would be something along these lines. Does this teaching promote Christ-like holiness? Does it humble human pride? Does it exalt Christ? Does it lead to genuine love for God and love for others? Those are some just quick tests to hold this type of thing up to. The proper use of the Bible leads to a true type of godliness. The misuse of the Bible leads to ungodliness and ruin. So Paul points out these two men who have misused the Bible, Hymenaeus and Philetus. The first, Hymenaeus, was actually mentioned in 1 Timothy. Let's just flip back there real quick. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19. keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, a different person here with Hymenaeus, who, have, who I have delivered over to Satan, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. What they were actually teaching was, was blasphemy, something that was totally against God. But they were professing believers, you see. And not only were they professing believers, they were leading other professing believers astray. 
So here were some professing Christians who had gone astray and leading others astray. This no doubt saddened Paul, and he wanted Timothy to realize that this was a situation taking place in the early church, but he didn't want Timothy to be discouraged by this. Paul was not discouraged by this, and Timothy shouldn't be discouraged by this. So in the midst of his warnings about worldly and empty chatter, he includes a great consolation and encouragement in verses 19 through 21. So let's just read those again. 19, chapter 2, 19. Nevertheless, so he's just got through talking about these men that have gone astray and leading others astray, upsetting the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those that are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. No matter how things appear, whatever errors and heresies seem to infest the professing people of God, with people falling away from the faith, Paul says to Timothy, Nevertheless, you can be sure of this, the firm foundation of God stands. It's immovable, indestructible, and invincible. God's true people, the church, founded upon Christ and his word, will stand. Those that he knows and that know him will stand when all else fails. As Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Doesn't matter how much heresy, false teachers, false prophets come in, Christ is building his church and the gates of hell are not going to overpower it. The firm foundation, I think, that he's talking about here are those that are truly in Christ, the, the whole number of God's elect. This foundation has been laid by God himself. The firm foundation of God stands. And because it's laid by God, made by God, it's going to to be kept by God, it's going to stand. You know, it's a miracle, supernatural thing, that the church of God, God's people, have not been annihilated long ago. If you think of that little group of 120 men and women there in the upper room, with all that was going to come upon them, persecution from the great mighty Roman Empire. Think of all the false teachers and false teaching, all the cults, all the false prophets, all the hypocrites, all the oppositions from the world and Satan. How's come there's a church yet today? Well, it's because the firm foundation of God stands. It's because God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. God has sealed his church by his spirit. And this sealing shows his ownership. See, it says the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. This seal shows his ownership of the church, his protection of the church, and certifies the church's authenticity as the true people of God. It's like a trademark. It's one way of thinking of it anyway. 
You know, a trademark tells you who made this product. God's got his trademark upon his true people. When you see that, when you see that little, what do they call it, a swish, a check mark. Well, that's Nike. You know it. You see it. It says this is a product that Nike made. They say, and some of the commentators bring out, that the cornerstone on some of the foundations of the buildings in uh, the time of Paul were actually marked or inscribed with a seal saying, who made this? Well, Paul tells us that God has set his seal upon his people, his church. And that seal or inscription has two parts, we're told here. First part, the Lord knows those that are his. The second part, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. The first part has to do with God's eternal decree, his sovereignty. The second part has to do with man's responsibility. The first part takes place in eternity. The second part takes place in time. The first part refers to the church's security. The second part refers to her purity. So this first part of the seal that God has put upon the church, the divine part, is this. The Lord knows those that are His. Now this is talking about much more than just God's omniscience, that He knows everything. It's not saying He knows about these people. It's speaking about His personal, intimate, loving knowledge and relationship with His people. The Lord knows those that are His in a particular, personal intimate way. It's what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. As he went on to say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. It's what Paul was talking about in Romans when he said, for whom he did, that is, for whom God, for whom he, he God, did foreknow, knew ahead of time, he also did predestinate to become conformed to the image of his Son. So that's the divine part of the seal we're talking about, the first part. But the other part of the seal, man's side, has this inscription on it. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. If you name the name of the Lord, that is, if you say that you're a Christian, then you will align yourself with his doctrines and desires. The true church consists of those who depart from iniquity. The true church is made up of those who have turned around from following their own way. You're now going God's way. 
In fact, that was one of the names, the early names of the church. They're called the way. It's because they've turned from their way and gone God's way. Abstaining from wickedness has to do with direction, not perfection. It has to do with which way you're going, God's way or your way. Here's a thought. A limping runner on the right road is better off than an Olympic runner on the wrong road. Many professing Christians seem to be running quite well, but if they're headed in the wrong direction on the wrong road, by that I mean the way of selfishness and sin, presenting and receiving worldly and empty chatter would be the context here, it will not end well for them. They may be looking, look like they're running well, but they're running in the wrong direction. Men like Hymenaeus and Philetus had gone astray from God's way and were now heading in the wrong direction and leading others in that direction. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it means that although the Lord knows those that are His, Often we don't. You can't always tell. Things can look good. These guys may have looked pretty good for a while, and some of these other men uh, and people who have had their faith upset, they may have looked good for a while. The Lord knows those that are His. We don't. But we do know this, everyone who names the name of the Lord must abstain from wickedness. To those that practice lawlessness, the Lord said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now they said they were the Lord's. But the Lord said, I never knew you. So these two truths, these basic truths, one has to do with God's sovereignty, the other man's responsibility, must always be held together. Again, the first one, God knows and loves his own. The second, we must and will depart from sin. Two very basic things. To put all our emphasis on one or the other is to be unscriptural and will do harm. God has joined them together and no man should separate them. These twin truths are brought out over and over again in Scripture. And God stamps them on the hearts of his people. In chapter 1 of this letter that we're looking at here, 2 Timothy, Paul says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. So he saved us and he's called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. 
in him. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Salvation, chosen us from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Peter says that Christians are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father for the sanctif- by the sanctifying work of the Spirit unto obedience. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. James says, in the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. But he goes on to say, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. So again, the two sides, the two inscriptions on this foundation. When we see someone fall away from the faith and continue in that position, what should be our attitude? Well, initially our attitude should be, we didn't read this far, but he goes on in this section, verse 25 of chapter 2, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may escape, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That should be our initial response. But when that is to no avail, then how should we view the situation? Well, I think that what we've gathered here from what we've looked at, this foundation that God has established, is that we should be saddened. I think that's proper. Saddened for the person themselves who have gone astray and also for the damage done to the reputation of the church. But even in the midst of being saddened, we should not be shaken because we know that God's purposes are not being thwarted. Paul said this when he when he was taking the gospel to the Jewish people. Most of them didn't accept that that gospel. So he says, let me just turn to it real quick. He says, he asks a question, has the word of God failed? Is that how we should view this? Here we're bringing the gospel, telling them of the Messiah, and most of them aren't accepting this. Here's what he says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. They're not all Israel. They're not all the true people of God just because they have that name. To, to put it in the context of what Paul's talking about here in Second Timothy, we might put it this way, not all churchgoers are the church. Though some professing believers distort God's truth and defect from the faith, still we know that God's foundation stands. People may go astray. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. 
errors may be propagated in the name of Christ, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. False prophets may arise misleading many, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. The love of many may grow cold, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Difficult times may come where people have a form of godliness but deny its power. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. People may wrangle about words, spending time in discussions of vain and useless matters that lead many into ungodliness and false living. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows those that are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. So just to put it in a nutshell, what God has founded will stand. There will yet be a vast multitude of people before the throne of God saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It's going to be myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. But right now, as far as we're concerned right here on earth, if we name the name of the Lord, the thing that we should be, be striving for is to avoid worldly and empty chatter and to abstain from wickedness by the power of God, by the grace of God, to abstain from wickedness. The warning related to worldly and empty chatter and the encouragement related to God's grand purpose for his people.